You're listening to the Sydney Opera House Arty Farty Podcast. Read and daydream. In this season, Creative Conversations, we talk to your favourite artists and authors to find out what inspires them. Creativity is the thing that changes the world. This talk was recorded to inspire you. If you keep doing enough bad things, you actually get a really good thing. Just don't be afraid of failing. Up next, Henry Naylor. Just a warning, this episode deals with some adult concepts. We recommend a listening age of 12 plus. Henry Naylor is a British comedy writer, producer, director and performer who has written for many well-known British TV and radio shows. His plays, The Collector, Echoes, Borders and Games have been translated and performed all over the world, including many seasons at fringe festivals in Edinburgh and Adelaide. Henry has called in for a chat about his career, creative process, and the research that goes behind creating plays based on historical moments in time. Thanks so much for joining us, Henry. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. You've had such an interesting transition through so many roles in the arts. Can you tell us a little bit about your career and how you've combined writing, directing and acting to be where you are now? Well, it's kind of it's kind of weird, actually. I, I started really doing this job as a comedian many, many years ago, about uh, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and I was at university just doing funny shows with my best friend called uh, Andy Parsons. And um, we just did it just to get into free university parties and doing comedy because like they were really expensive to get into with the Mayballs at, at university. And we thought the only way of getting in was by being one of the acts and then you get free tickets. And, um, <laughs> so we started doing the, the um, Cambridge University um, sort of drama circuit by, uh, by that way. Um, and we suddenly found we were getting quite good at doing comedy. And, um, uh, and by the end of the university, uh, stay that we had after our three years and um, we did a big student review and a very famous English comedian called Griff Rhys Jones came to see it and he saw us on stage uh, and he said look I'm doing a TV show can I buy your material and we said well no you know this is ours but if you want us to write for you we happily will and um, so it was by complete chance I got into the job um, I then did comedy for about 15 years doing the comedy circuit and um, I did it to, to a reasonable level uh, and at the end though I got to about 40 and I thought I'm just too old to do this you know I'm just too old to stand up in front of rooms of drunks um, mm. telling them my jokes particularly my jokes tended to be very much about what was in the news uh, and I think sort of people going to pubs and clubs are less interested in that. They're more interested in having a good time. (laughs) And um, so um, I then worked in TV uh, as a uh, a script writer for many years to to supplement my income. Um, And then I eventually pitched this idea for a TV animation show called Headcases, which was about um, the week's news. And the show did, did, you know, really, really well. And um, But then there was a big financial crash in 2008 and the TV company nearly went bankrupt. And so um, um, my show got cancelled through no fault of its own. And suddenly I, I found I was unemployed after giving up doing stand-up, after uh, being effectively 
my job as a TV director finishing. Uh, and I was scratching around looking for something to do, and I, I was really missing the connection with uh, an audience. You know, it's very nice as a stand-up. You get an immediate reaction to your jokes. Um, you, people, you know whether you've done well or badly there and then. You're not waiting to, to for the end of the show to hear the applause, you know, in that precise moment. Um, and, and I was missing that direct contact especially actually tv is even worse tv you sort of put something out and you don't know what people think and people can watch the show but not really watch it they're doing their ironing or brushing the teeth or something and so you say did you see the show last night and they go uh, yeah and then they haven't got an opinion on it because they were vacuuming the floor when they were watching it <laughs> but there's something about doing theater and comedy which is Great, having that direct, being able to see the whites of the eyes of your audience, seeing them uh, react and gasp or laugh or or, or cry, uh, is a, is a a fantastic way of talking to another person and connecting with them. So, how much does that foundation in comedy now play a role in your in your playwriting? Um, I, it, I think comedy actually played has played a massive role in my playwriting because um, I, I think it teaches you the importance of an audience. I think uh, a lot of times uh, writers write stuff in their own back bedroom and then give it to, to a theatre to do. The thing about doing stand-up is you see your audience right there and then. You have to make them laugh. If you don't, you failed. And so there's that very strong connection between, between you and them. And it always makes you conscious when you're writing of your audience. It makes you think, who are you writing for? Mm. It makes you think... Um, uh, it makes you sure that you entertain them. You know, it's not about just my, my own ideas. I have to make people enjoy listening to what I'm saying, otherwise my ideas are wasted. Um, uh, so comedy has is, is very much taught me that. And I also think as well, I write about very serious issues, very, sometimes very tragic things. Uh, and it could, be, it could just get too heavy and too sad if, if, if all you're talking about is serious point after serious point. I think you need bits of humour in there to make it palatable. Um, uh, and, and, and I think it's very true. One of my best friends is a war correspondent, and he, he goes out to the Middle East all the time. Uh, and he's seen some awful, awful things, some of the worst things you could imagine. Uh, and he is... Also, they're one of the funniest people I've ever met. And I think for him, humour is a coping mechanism to, to deal with some of the, the, the nastier elements of life. Um, and so I do that as well with my material. I try and put jokes in because I think uh, that's what people do. Yeah. I think um, when people are dealing with bad times, they do laugh. I mean, I think there's... Uh, uh, I've, had a, I've had a friend once who... Um, couldn't stop laughing at a funeral, got hysterical. And I think that is um, that is a sign. I think human beings kind of need humour to cope with tragic events. Yeah, the human response to, to something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so many, we're going to talk a little bit more in a moment about the themes of your work, but so many of them are really, they're really um, serious topics and themes. Uh, so how do you use the device of comedy to break up the, that moment? Um, well, I, very often at the start of a show, I'll put in most of my comedy. I think um, 
uh, I put in a lot of jokes towards the top just to relax the audience, just to sort of say to me, it's all right, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about some serious issues, but, you know, I'm not going to bludgeon you around the head with them. Um, um, yeah, and, and then in the main body of a show, in the middle of it, I'll, I'll often put in jokes just to um, give the audience a break, a breath. If you've talked about something very, very sad and very, very tragic, uh, after a while, you think, right, you just need a pause to catch your breath, and I'll put in some jokes there. And and that's, the, you know, that's the device that um, uh, um, great playwrights, and I'm not including myself in that, but people, that's something that I've, I've studied from Shakespeare. Shakespeare does that a lot in Macbeth after uh, there's a terrible murder scene in the middle of uh, Macbeth, and what he does directly after that, he has a court jester coming mm-hmm. on telling jokes. And it's just a way of giving an audience a, a, a break. And so I, that's something I kind of go great lesson I've learned and try to insert into my work. All right, I've got a. This is a really hard question, I think. What makes something funny? When we're talking um, back back to your stand up comedy, how do you plan for something to be funny to get the response that you're after? I mean, it's, it's a massive question, that. And I think partly because, like, I, I think comedy is a, a, a relationship. I think sort of one of the things I've, I've not, never really understood is academics study jokes to work out whether they're funny or not. And I think that's missing the point. I think jokes need two people. They need the teller and they need the, the, the listener. Uh, and um, it's uh, because you can tell the same joke to two different audiences and you get a completely different response. Uh, say, for instance... Uh, you know, if I, if I told, um, uh, I, I mean, God, this is a, this might be a bit of a crass example, but sort of, um, if somebody was telling a joke to, let's say a right wing audience, they'd respond to it very differently from a left wing audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you told a joke, which was, um, uh, offensive to, uh, a, a left wing audience, a right wing audience might find it funny and vice versa. So saying, how do you, do you find something funny? I think you've always got to bear in mind who your audience is. Mm. Um, and, um, and I think that is possibly one of the reasons why comedians often have a very similar political viewpoint, because all the people going to watch comedy shows on the comedy circuit tend to come from a certain political persuasion. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of comics tend to be uh, left-wing or centre-left. Because uh, the the audience who go and see comedy shows tend to be people who have alternative lifestyles. Uh, and uh, I think that's why there's a danger, actually, with comedians, that we all end up sort of talking to ourselves and talking to people with a similar opinion. Yeah. Um, what what inspired you to to follow a career into the arts, comedy being the sort of start of it and now on to other things after that? What What was your inspiration for doing that? It's funny, I come from a family, I mean, my family, a, a family of sort of business people. We have a family business at home, which makes, of all things, sewer pipes. <laughs> uh, and everybody in the family has kind of gone into it. And, it. and if I'm honest, I'm awful at, at business. I can't make money to save my life. Um, but I do think I can I can write. And my dad, um, um, bless him, he, he was... Uh, he was a very good public speaker. He had a very good sense of humor. And he used to go to these business conferences and just um, uh, 
delight to be the first person to stand up and do a speech and fill it full of full of jokes and things like that. And so um, I've got a brother. He's the guy who's learned the business side of my dad. I'm the, the, the one that sort of learned his uh, fun side. Mm-hmm. And I think so he was always extremely encouraging whenever I was um, uh, doing my comedy gigs. He'd come to them all, you know, and had a very distinctive laugh. And I'd always be able to pick him out from the, from the crowd. Yeah, nice. Um, where do you find the stories that you want to tell? Well, I think when it comes to playwriting, I get I, I normally when I do it, I get very angry about something in the news or something that or, or something up to isn't being talked about um, uh, in the main media, and and I, and I kind of try and put those issues into the public domain with, with my plays. Uh, and I, I, I'm very aware of the fact that in theatre, you'll write, write a play um, in, let's say, January. It might not get on stage for six months. And so there's part of the job is predicting, for me anyway, because I deal with issue-based theatre, is predicting what's going to be on the news uh, in six months' time. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Games, which is the story that uh, you're going to see at the Sydney Opera House, um, there was... Uh, I, I was very alarmed at home about the rise of the right wing in the UK after Brexit. I think sort of um, Brexit is a very complicated thing at home, but some people were clearly voting for Britain to leave Europe because they had borderline racist views. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of the time in the um, on the streets, people were beginning to become more racist because of the Brexit vote emboldened people. There's a, a political ideology which uh, came in the middle of the last century, which was very racist, which um, which said that um, uh, that that was basically white supremacist. That said that that, that that seemed to believe that white people were better than any others, and this involved creating terrible, terrible. Um, persecution of certain communities uh, in Germany in particular um, and there you saw people um, basically put in prison camps because they were Jewish or because they were disabled or because they were they were Romani gypsy um, and uh, that is the that is the kind of politics I'm fighting against mm. um, I, I think my work tends to be very humanitarian I believe very much that we're all equals uh, you know in terms of sex and race and uh, gender uh, and I think it's it, it, so it's very important for me to attack those ideas which I think I see as unfair uh, and uh, unhuman I mean it, it's kind of I feel those ideologies are bullying uh, and I think we should stand you know the good people should all stand up and fight them Mm. Uh, fight those viewpoints. So um, back at home after Brexit, people were saying very racist and nasty things about people from Europe. Um, you know, Britain kind of separated itself from Europe. And um, some of those viewpoints uh, were anti-Semitic and were attacking people from the Jewish community. And... Um, I hate this with a passion, and I kind of think it, it's it's very dangerous um, 
for, for, for society to go along that route. I don't want the world to be like it was in the 1930s mm. when um, uh, the Nazis gained considerable power and basically we had a huge world war to, to get rid of them. Um, uh, and there's just a danger that some of those viewpoints are sneaking back into society and I think it's very important to crush them straight away. Mm. A lot of your plays are about historical moments in our time, Middle East conflicts and Nazi occupation of Germany. Can you explain your research process when you're looking at these subjects? Yeah, it's funny, actually. What I, I, I've quite an unusual creative process, which, which, which affects the, the, the research. I mean, very often I'll find an actor I like working with and, uh, and I'll write things specifically for them. Um, so I worked for um, uh, a long time with uh, an actress called Avital Lavova, and she was she was the actress that was uh, in Games when I when I first wrote it, and we were on tour and we were taking our shows around the world, and we we ended up in this very <laughs> strange bar in Cape Verde, which is an African island. We were doing a festival there, and we were there, and everybody on the island spoke Portuguese apart from us. Hmm. Uh, and so we only had ourselves to company. We'd just done a show. We're stuck in a bar. And I said, okay, Vita, I've got to write something for you. Um, um, you know, and, and we said, I said, what, what do we fancy writing? And she said, look, I think we should do something attacking the far right. And, uh, and, and I agreed with her. And I sort of said to her, okay, so let's look at you. Let's write something specifically for you. She's Jewish. She's Built like an athlete, very very strong woman, um, and, um, and you know we both had this shared interest in trying to um, fight fascism, uh, and so um, I basically said, well, look, because you look like an athlete, maybe something happened at the Olympic Games um, with Jewish athletes at the time of the Nazis, and so we just we were just literally sat in a bar, and I just put, did a Google search, I put. Um, Female Jewish athletes, um, Berlin 1936, which is when the, the Olympic Games were on at, at the time of the Nazis. And this story popped up hmm. from about Helena Meyer and um, about Gretel Bergman, who are the characters of the night. And it was an astonishing story. I mean, we just we started reading the links there. We, we sort of, you know, got lost in all the tunnels of, of Google. And... Um, it was astonishing, and I just sort of thought at the end of it, why does nobody know about this? Mm. Uh, and um, and it was so right for Vita to do it because um, uh, you know I just knew she'd do it brilliantly. So I, um, then to research it, having decided on the topic, I just literally looked at everything I could find on it. Um, I, uh, you know, looked at uh, looked at every sort of link I could find on the internet. Sort of found loads of books. Um, about uh, the athletes and, and the world at the time and, and read those. And normally when I write things, I, um, I spend a period of months, and I think in this case it's about three or four months, just reading before I do any writing at all. Um, and after a while, if you know what the character is uh, you're writing about, all the re- uh, through the research, the characters kind of, starts talking to you in your head. It's, it's a very weird thing. Mm. And um, so um, th- that's, that's, uh, and that's the point when I start writing. 
because I'm kind of losing my voice and I'm beginning to think with that. And when you think with that, you can create really true and, and realistic um, uh, dialogue and, and, and words in, uh, for, for your script. Do you think that due to you being a performer yourself, it's easier to find those character voices regardless of whether they're male or female? Uh, yeah, it does. It does help. It does help, undoubtedly. Having, if if you if you like acting, you, I think getting a sense of an audience is very important. Getting a sense of what um, audiences like to hear, uh, and I think uh, so. That does help in terms of like building a character, in terms of like giving them things to say. But also, I think my writing style has always been. I used to get told off by my teachers for this. It's always been very conversational. I kind of, I always, I've always written as I've spoken, uh, and that for being a playwright has actually been a very useful yeah. skill to learn. Even though, even if it learned my, drove my teachers mad, you know, they wanted sort of things that, that sounded a bit more sophisticated. Where I was almost using uh, my day-to-day conversational language. What's been the, one of the most difficult things about writing about a historical moment? Well, there's a, there's, when you write about a historical topic, there's always a kind of a, 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 a dilemma. You want to make it seem as true as possible, but you also have got to make sure it's entertaining. And sometimes, I mean, real life is a bit messy, uh, unlike the world of plays and theatre and, and, and movies. Normally in plays, theatre and movies, there's a beginning, a middle and an end. In real life, things don't work out that smoothly. You know, things, um, things. There isn't always a moment of realization for people in real life, mm-hmm. and so to put events that happened in real life onto a stage, you've got to almost manufacture and, and sort of uh, uh, and and make the world fit the story. So you have to bend truth a little bit. Mm. Um, and I do, I, I, you know, I think it, it's, a, it's a dilemma that all playwrights have. Uh, you know, am I being fair to the people that I'm talking about? Uh, and am I being fair to the story? Am I telling a good enough story by making it 100% true? Mm. Uh, now, most of the stuff in the play is, is true, and it happened. But there are things, uh, because... Um, these the people in the story have kind of been forgotten a bit by history. There are huge gaps in our knowledge, and you have to fill those in. Uh, and also, there's something about reading about people in the past where people don't always feel real. I think there's, there's kind of like a, we feel detached by them. And and you have to kind of imagine what the, the, you know. You have to imagine what they were thinking. You have to um, put yourself in their shoes um, uh, more than you would normally do writing history, where you're just writing dates and um, uh, you know talking about facts. You need to to, to show what people felt. Mm. Uh, and I think you've got to enter into a slightly different mindset than than you would do if you're studying history. Mm. In games, you write. Sportsmen have no business with politics, nor politics with sport. What is an artist business in today's world? Well, I think, I mean, for artists, I think um, 
we've all made a choice not to and a commitment uh, to our art. I think if we wanted to make money, there's some very bright people doing art who don't make a lot of money, but they want to make the world a better place. Uh, and so for me personally, um, I, I want to make the world a better place for, for my kids. Uh, I've got two two small children, and it's no coincidence that I started writing plays when I had my kids mm. because um, I saw, uh, as, as, a, as a guy in his 50s, I kind of want to make the world better for them for when they, they are, they're my age. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a moral duty to do that. Mm. Um, do you... I just want to talk a little bit about your creative process before coming back to the actual play and games. What process do you go through when you're writing a new work? Do you map out the whole plot before writing a word or do bits come to you along the way? There's a mixture of both, actually. Normally, when I'm writing, I have an idea of... I I won't start writing it until I know what the thing is I want to write about. If I want to say, I think... um, Racism is bad. I'll start that. That, that I, I'll I'll have an idea of roughly what the end point is. I'll have either a character admitting that, you know, I'd like have a racist character having learnt that they've uh, made mistakes, uh, and by the end they've they've changed their world, world viewpoint and become much much fairer and more humanitarian, for instance. Uh, or um, uh, so so you know. So I've got kind of got an end point there. And then your start point, you want to see them to have gone through a huge change. So your start point, you work backwards and have them almost the opposite of that. So that when you, and then you start, then when you research, you find out all sorts of little bits of scenes you can put in in between. And you think, oh, well, that could go near the start and that bit can go towards the end and that bit can go in the middle. Uh, and I'm, I'm always researching at the same time as I'm writing. And what I do, which is a bit different from a lot of playwrights is, most playwrights, I think, they write a play, they give it to a director, and they clear off, and the director then puts it all together. What I tend to do is, uh, the director will find, find actors to do it. What I tend to do is, I find the actor first, uh, and then I'll um, start writing the material for them. And what it, what it means is, you end up with a play at the end where the, 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 the personality of the actor and the personality in the script are completely, you know, mixed together, completely meshed together. Uh, and so you get these incredible performances which feel really, really true. And, and, and so you should because, like, they've been written specifically for those, for those actors. Um, that, that's how I've always worked. And, then, uh, and so I'll write twice as much as I need. I'll, I'll give it to my actor who already cast. I'll get them to read it back to me. And I'll just be an audience to my own work and I'll listen to it and you can hear where it's a bit boring and you can hear where it's too long and you can, uh, and you can hear where there's bits missing. And, and by doing that, I'll then do a big rewrite. I'll cut it all down. I'll put in new lines. I'll even sit in the room there and then and say to, to my actor, okay, why not try this and just write something there and then and give it to them to do. Um, and I'll have a, about a week with the actor um, working it all out. And at the end of that week, I'll go, great, okay, we've got a script we're happy with. The actor's beginning to, to feel like the character and, and, and behave, you know, know how the character should re- behave in the works. And then I find my director. 
So it, it, it's, um, and then I get a director on board and I say, right, you know, tell them where to stand on the stage, yeah. make a look for it, you know, but but that's that's your character. But it, it, it's, it's a very different process, I think, mm. mine than, than most people. Yeah, I mean, in the introduction to you, I said that you quite often, a lot of your plays are written for Fringe festivals around the world. So do you think yeah. that you're always writing with the the hope in your mind that you will be able to get the play up so that you keep the production values quite simple for anyone to be able to do it. Yeah, I think that's that's very much it. But there's a disadvantage with doing stuff with uh, without many props, with small casts, uh, and without any set. Uh, because big theatres like to give their audiences value for money, mm-hmm. and there are there are audiences who want to see all those things. For me personally, I think to tell a good story, all you need is a good script, a good director, and a good actor. Yeah. And if if they they do their jobs well, they can create a world uh, which uh, on the stage, which um, it, by playing on the audience's imagination, you mm. can make them think that they're in 1936 Germany. Mm. You can make them think um, they're in Syria in the middle of the war zone. Uh, um, by by involving the audience, getting them to, to to imagine it as well. But everybody needs to be at the top of the game. Yeah. But I think that's the big difference between cinema and theatre. Cinema can take you anywhere, and you see it directly before your eyes. Theatre has that limitation that that um, you know budgets are small. You can't have huge sets. Um, and so you have to use the power of acting and the power of words to take people to those places. Mm. Uh, uh, and um, so so that's that's why I do what I do. Mm. Mixed with the audience's um, ability to go along on the ride with you, with their imaginations as well. Yeah, it, it, and undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Mm. I mean, sort of, I, you know, I, I kind of treat my... Plays. I'm, I'm right very much with the audience in mind, very much with them in mind, and 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 I, I have to be very specific, uh, very careful in the choice of my words uh, to make the audience see what isn't there. So I have to paint pictures with words. I have to make them uh, uh, imagine <clears throat> very carefully what what's there, and. Um, I think that's that's kind of a hallmark of my style. A lot of it is very um, descriptive, but I've, you've got to do it quickly. You've got to get people to imagine that world in a very quick way, otherwise it can become very wordy and you end up writing three hours plays with no action. <laughs> For me, it's got to be very, very... You've got to paint a picture really quickly in just two or three words so people know where they are. How do you want your audience to feel or think when they leave one of your plays? I think one of the most important things for me is to get people talking about issues that they haven't been talking about. You know, get them discussing things um, on the way home and, and um, uh, challenging them. If, if, there is, if society is doing something which I think is unjust or wrong or, uh, or bad, I feel that it's, it's very important uh, as... Um, to, to to challenge that, make people sort of say, why are we doing things this way? Why should we be doing them that way? Um, and so that's what I always try and do. I think in games, I always 
I, I wanted people to go away and, and discuss how do we approach identity, but also I wanted people to go away and go be vigilant against uh, processes of thought which which are nasty and hateful. Uh, I wanted people to go away and 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 sort of challenge people who have been openly racist to to uh, uh, and th- and that's why uh, games came about. Mm. How long does it take you to finish writing a play? Uh, the thing about writing is it, it's never finished. You know, you, uh, uh, really, you can always change a bit here and there. There's always bits in, in your work that you kind of think, ah, I could have added a scene here or that scene doesn't do what I want it to do and I need to rewrite it. So uh, uh, what I try and do, because you can write forever. There was a time when I didn't put a, a deadline on the on my work and I ended up writing a play for about, no, writing a film script for about two years. And what I needed to do was to have a definite end point which would make me make the choices that I wanted, that, uh, that I had to make by. I mean, uh, with my plays, what I tend to do is is I'll write a play for the Edinburgh Festival in August. There's a venue I always go to called the Gilded Balloon. And I always uh, book an hour-long slot there. Uh, and I know that no matter what happens, I've got to have an hour's worth of play on stage in August. <laughs> so I've got a definite cut-off point. Uh, and, then in, uh, and then in February... Uh, the Edinburgh Festival wants you to put in a little bit of blurb for the program, a little bit of a description of what the show's going to be. So in February, I'll decide what I think is going to be in the news in August. What are the things people are going to be talking about? How can we make uh, theatre speak to, to its audience? So in, in sort of about this time of year, I'll be going, right, what will we be talking about in, in August? Uh, and then I'll have basically between February and August to to write it and stage and get the cast. So I'd like to get the uh, working back on that. <laughs> I think it, I'll do my research for two or three months. Uh, um, then I'll cast it. Then I'll spend uh, uh, a month writing, uh, and then we'll do um, the uh, um, the staging and the directing after that. So yeah, it it's. Three months, one month, mm. one month, really. I just want to focus a little bit of time on games. Um, and about you've already told the story about how you heard about Helene um, Meyer and Gretel Bergman. Can you just give us a little bit of a rundown about the story? I mean, the, the basic facts of the story were that there was a... Helene Meyer was the world's greatest sportsman in in the 1920s. She was a superstar. She was this fencer who was a stunningly beautiful woman. She was 18 years old, and she fought at the Olympic uh, Games in Amsterdam. And there, she um, she she won the gold medal. She was just a kid, and um, Germany went crazy for her, partly because uh, they'd just been in the First World War. Everybody blamed Germany for the war. Um, uh, and it was the first Olympic Games that Germany were allowed to compete in after that war. And she showed a really positive and um, uh, positive version of Germany. And so Germany felt very proud of itself through her 
So she was a superstar. And when she came home from the Olympics in the 1920s, she was mobbed when she came out of the train station. Then in 1932, she was uh, obviously 22 at this time. She was expected to win gold again because um, uh, she was entering, uh, she was that much more experienced. She, she was uh, that better an athlete. But what happened just before she competed in those Olympics were, uh, I think five hours before she was due to, to fight, she was told that her boyfriend had been killed. And the boyfriend had died in a shipping accident. And uh, the, the story goes is that she was a bit scrambled, you know, mentally as a result. And instead of winning, she came fifth. And so she was very, very upset. And she wanted to get her... Uh, and, and sort of like, you know, Germany began to look for heroes elsewhere. And so she wanted to win back her Olympic title more than anything. And then Germany won the Olympic Games in 1936. They were going to, to kind of put the games on in, in, in Munich, in Germany. And she thought she could reclaim her stero, hero status by winning her gold medal back for her country in her own country. Mm. Um, and so she was determined to fight in Berlin. Um, but what happened was, was uh, in the meantime, the, the Nazi party got into power in Germany. And they were... They believed that um, that white, blonde-haired, blue-haired, blue-eyed people of the uh, of the Aryan race were a master race, and so anybody who wasn't part of that 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 group of people, they didn't want to have representing Germany, uh, and uh, so. Maya wanted to compete for Germany, but the German uh, government wouldn't let her, uh, and so. It turned out that Maya's biggest fights were not necessarily in the sporting arena; they were outside the arena. She had to um, she had to persuade uh, the world to let her take part in the games to win back her Olympic gold medal. And uh, so it's an extraordinary story where she went. She got help from the Americans. The Americans decided that they they hated the the Nazis and what they were doing politically and what they were uh, and then being awful to, to, to the Jewish community. And so they um, said, if you don't take Jewish athletes into your Olympic team, we're not coming. And America was so powerful at that time, Hitler was made to back down and he mm -hmm. took one Jewish athlete on who was Helena Meyer. And so poor Helena Meyer was not just fighting for herself, mm -hmm. she's fighting for her entire community of people. And she didn't want to do that. She didn't feel she was Jewish. She just wanted to, um, she saw herself as a sportsman. She wanted to, to win a gold medal back. Uh, and yet now she's carrying the hopes of, uh, hopes of her people. And it became a real, I mean, that for me is, is a fascinating, dramatic tension. Was she representing herself? Was she representing Germany? Mm. Was she re representing the Jewish community? Was she allowed to choose who she represented? Or, or uh, was she only who uh, the world says she was? So I, I think, and I think those issues are kind of what we're dealing with today. Are we who we want to be? Or are we who the world tells us we should be? And I want to be who I want to be, and I'm sure your audience do. Um, but um, uh, 
you know, uh, but should I be serving a bigger group of people than myself? I don't know if I should. I mean, I think that, that's the discussion I think we should be having as a society. As a society. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's what I dealt with in, in, in the play. And in Bergman's story, actually, she needed a, somebody with a different viewpoint in the story to, um, to, to bring her viewpoint out. And that's why I picked up on Bergman's story. And Bergman were, was this incredible woman. She, um, she, she was Jewish and she, um, was, uh, came from a, a, a very sort of, rural sort of you know from the countryside um and she wanted uh and she was in this this astonishingly good athlete and when the nazis came to power they said jewish people can't use the sports facilities they're only for the the, the white aryan blonde-haired blue-eyed community and um she said thought well that's unfair and she every time the nazis did something unfair she worked harder just to try and prove them wrong and she got better and better and better and so no matter how much um the nazis put in a way to try and stop against her uh, she worked harder and and she started out um just being, you know, she, she was always good, but then she, then she became sixth in Germany, then she became third in Germany. Then the Nazis tried to stop her competing, so she went to England and tried to compete for, for, for the uh, British squad. She broke the British record. Uh, the Nazis realized that uh, it was getting quite embarrassing for them because they, they were overlooking this brilliant, brilliant athlete. And so they said, okay, well, come back. We might let you compete. And so she came back, and then they took all the facilities away from her, and so she competed even better. And then in the end, she broke the European record three weeks before the Olympic Games. And had to be picked. Just had to be picked. Mm -hmm. She was the best high jumper in the whole of Europe. And yet the Nazis... Well, I don't want to give away too much about the story, but but now... The Nazis responded in a way that I think was extremely unfair. Uh, uh, well, it was unfair. <laughs> Not what I think. It was just it's a ridiculous. Um, so yeah. So she she and and Maya have a different approach to life because Bergman was fighting for for a bigger community. Mm. She was fighting for humanity, and she was fighting for. The, um, the for the for the Jewish people, she was yeah. fighting against what Hitler was saying, whereas Maya was fighting against Hitler in a different way. She was going, "You won't tell me who I am. I am an individual. I fight for me." And they're both valid ways of fighting Nazism, I think. Uh, but it's I'm inviting the audience to say, "What would you do? What would you do? Do you think the best way of fighting them is by asserting your individuality, saying I'm not, I'm not a race, I'm not a group, uh, or, or do you fight them by saying I am a race, I am a group, and we're going to stand against you? Mm. Both are valid. I, I find it a fascinating thing to, to to write about. What's the most surprising thing that you've learnt while while researching, if not this play, any of your other ones? Something that was a real surprise discovery. I, I, well, 
you're always surprised. You're constantly surprised. And you're looking for those moments of surprise in your research because that's what makes your play interesting. Because if I'm interested by something, then the audience will be. So there's millions of surprises I, I find in my research, and, and, and I try and put them in my work. <clears throat> I did find it very surprising in the case of Helena Meyer how modern a woman she was in that uh, I kind of thought that people from the 1920s and 30s, uh, women in the 1920s and 30s, um, weren't allowed to uh, express themselves in the workplace. And Maya did. I mean, I, I don't think you would have that with a, a British woman from that period. I think sort of society would have been going, oh, no, women shouldn't be seen out in public sort of kissing boyfriends and things like that. And instead of which... Um, in the nineteen, uh, the, the 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 May of the nineteen thirties was, um, you know, behaved very much like sort of women do today. I think, and I, I found that very interesting. Mm. Like to talk just a little bit about important moments during your career, and you've because you've had such an interesting career that's taken lots and lots of twists and turns. Some key moments. Yeah. Do you have a standout moment in your career where you go, oh, that. I'm really, really proud of myself for that. I find it extraordinary seeing my work translated into a language that I don't speak. <laughs> I went to Spain recently, and uh, it was on in the... I had a play called Echoes, which is one of the first plays I wrote, and it was on at the Teatro Español, which is the the oldest theatre in Europe. I think it was built... Uh, oldest working theatre in Europe, and it was built in the 1500s. And um, it's this beautiful theatre. It was massive. It had, a, it had over a thousand seats, all these gilded balconies and things like that. And then the actors came on and did my play and I didn't understand it because it wasn't my language. Uh, and I was, it was kind of weird sitting in this room thinking, wow, we're all here because of something that came from my head. And the one person who can't understand it is the yes, head it came from. <laughs> I found that very, very uh, interesting. Um, yeah, but I, 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 yeah, I do get very proud seeing it in other languages, and and mm. I think and I do. I, I get excited seeing other people take it on and making it their own. Like Angel, that that was another case in point. They did it in French, and. Um, and that was something I got very proud of. He got he got nominated for the equivalent of the Golden Globes in France. Their Golden Globes encompasses TV, film, and theatre. And he got he got nominated for that massive deal. Um, you know, huge awards, televised ceremony, and all that kind of thing. And 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 that that was that was very exciting. Uh, and the actress who played Angel won, which was just a cause of great celebration. Wow. Um, um, but seeing how they approached Angel, again, you know, they had, uh, all we had when we did it was just one barrel on stage and the actress acted 17 characters and we, we, we went to about 15 different locations in the story, but we just told it with one barrel. In France, they had this, they had a campfire on stage and they had a tree, a whole tree on stage and she had a, um, an AK-47 and, um, you know, and I find I find I find it really exciting seeing that I've helped inspire somebody else's creativity, and that gives me a kick. Mm. Have you had any career setbacks? Yeah, I mean, sort of. Um, my biggest setback was when I was a TV director. I, I did this um, 
um, an animation show for ITV, which is my idea, and uh, I, would, I was writing a lot of it, and I was the, the director. And, and it was about what happened in that week's news, and it was done through animation. So it was an incredibly um, innovative show. We were doing half an hour's worth of animation a week based on the week's news. Uh, and it got good ratings. It got uh, it won awards. Um, we, we, we were given a second series. And then the TV company nearly went bust. Mm. And they basically, they shut down the comedy department overnight because they thought comedy was too expensive. And so through no fault of my own, I was suddenly unemployed. And uh, and I'd done everything I'd asked me for. I thought I'd arrived. I thought I'd made it in the job. And just when I thought I was peaking, it just disappeared overnight. And I was pretty much unemployed for about two years after that. And that, wow. that was kind of when I started, you know, writing plays. I was kind of going, there's no point waiting for the phone to ring and getting off a TV directing gig, so I've got to find myself some work. And that's when I started... Creating your own. Writing plays, yeah. yeah. So yeah. in a way, I mean, that, that was a massive setback. Mm. I, I, and it felt, you know, I, I think I was probably not far from being depressed during that, that period. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, but through, every, through bad things, good stuff can come. And I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if we'd have got a second series. I'd be a TV director. Mm. And... In all honesty, I get more pride and more satisfaction out of my plays than anything else. I think I was born to do this. And if by having a failed TV series, I ended up here, then then it was a good thing. Mm. How do you deal with criticism? Um, it, it depends. I always read the reviews of my work mm. because you can always learn something. If there's a criticism that comes up once, I go, well, that's just your opinion. If there's a criticism that comes up twice, you think there might be something in this uh, and it's worth having a look. And, and rather than treating it, I think some artists react very hostilely to, to criticism. You know, obviously it hurts your pride, but I think it can help you be a better artist if you listen to the opinions of somebody who's experienced and knows the job. Um... I had a fantastic one in New York, actually, recently. It was, it was brilliant. I had this... This guy hated my work. Absolutely hated it. And he said... Well, and he wrote this piece. He basically said, well, if you like Henry Neeler's stuff, you will like this. And he just sort of parodied the way I wrote. And he wrote this article, which was brilliantly written, <laughs> in my style. Uh, saying why, you know, as a, a way of saying he didn't like it. And for me, I was delighted by that because it said to me, I have a distinctive voice. If somebody can take the mickey out of your voice, mm. if somebody can joke about it, you've got a voice. And that's what I've been wanting to do for years of my work. You know, I think it's one of the hardest things to get in theatre. I want to get to a stage where if you lift a speech out of one of my plays and you read it, you know that I've written it. I think that's the sign of a, of of, um, of, 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 of that's what I want to aspire to. That's what I think is an accomplished writer. Yeah. In the same way that I think if you were to see just a corner of a Monet painting, yes. you'd instantly know it was a Monet. 
I want to get to like that with my work. I want to be able to list speeches out and go, yeah, that's that's Henry's. Henry's yeah. And by him doing that, I got such a kick. And I think he wanted to make me upset and miserable. And I was absolutely thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best creative advice that you've received? Hmm. Well, that's a big question. Best creative advice I've received. There's always another line. <laughs> I think. I, I think. I, I think. What I think. The, the mistake a lot of writers make, and inexperienced writers, is by clinging too tenaciously onto what we've written. And I've seen writers uh, in rooms with a director. A director says, "I don't like this this line," and the writer fighting for it. That's fine if you can justify why it should be in the play. But I've seen people fighting in it because it's offending their ego that the director's taking control and trying to change the line. There's always another line. Mm. You can always write something better. You know, I, I, I will, I fight like mad for bits, which I think are vital to the story. And I will tell the director, but I, got, I have to have a reason for a line to be in the play to justify it uh, if a director says change it. I won't fight for it for the sake of writing for it. I go, okay, and I'll just go and do some more work. Well, listen, I've got one last question. What would be your advice to anyone, any any kid that's interested in going into a career in the arts? Um, it, it, I think it's very useful to try a bit of everything. And I think in my in my job, I've done... Writing, directing, performing, producing. And each one of those roles helps me in the other. So when I'm writing, I know from being a producer not to have too many characters or sets or props because it's too expensive to take them on tour. So, you know, that, that helped me with that. When, I'm, uh, when I've been a director, I know that um, there are certain things it's... I, I know what actors can do on stage, and I can therefore, and that influences the way I write scripts. Um, but also, just from a purely practical point of view, everybody thinks that people in showbiz make a lot of money. They don't. It's only the people at the very, 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 very top who do, and they make a fortune. It's, it, there's a very unequal distribution of money, and I think to stay in the job for any length of time, you will need to do multiple jobs. And some people do day jobs. Uh, I've got a lot of friends who are actors who do jobs like nannying and, and um, uh, who uh, secretarial work. For me personally, I want to keep learning about theatre. So I've deliberately tried to get good at two or three different things. Mm. And it's really satisfying that because you feel much more in control of what you're doing and, and feel much more confident in what you do if you understand all stages of the process. Mm. Um, so, um, but also, it, uh, what, uh, another bit of advice I can give, um, it, it's not easy. It's not easy. It, it's sort of, there are um, good times and bad times, but the bad times make the good times see, seem so much better. Mm. Uh, and you've just got to hang out, hang in there and just get, stick through them. You'll come out the other side, everything changes, you know, and, and 
uh, you, you know, if you trust your abilities, you, you, you'll do okay. Henry, thanks so much for sharing insights into your creative process and the highlights in your career and, and the inspirations for your, your work. We hope that it inspires you out there to research something that interests you and perhaps create a story or a play about an important moment in history or time that needs to be seen and heard. Thanks so much, Henry. Thank you very much. Sydney listeners, head to the Sydney Opera House website to book tickets to see Henry's play Games in April 2020. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to Artifarty wherever you get your podcasts from.